Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. The most important questions that a lawyer will ever ask in their case is the first ones. So, what are the first questions asked in Scripture? In this new series, First Questions, we'll explore that answer as we look at each of the first questions that are asked by individuals and characters all throughout the Bible. Let's turn now to the closing arguments and the final question. This is the final part of a series called First Questions, Um, and uh, it's a little bit misleading today. If you would have caught the first four parts of this series, I actually was doing first questions. Today I'm doing the last question. So it's a little bit different for a lot of reasons. So like I said, I I did the first questions. I did the very first question in Scripture. I did the very first question that God asked. I did the very first question that humanity asked. Last week we did the very first question that was found in the New Testament. But today we're looking at the last question, the very last question and all of Scripture. And not only uh, is today different because we're looking at the last, it's different for a couple of other reasons too. Number one, the, the whole time we've gone through this series, and you've heard me say this, the way you ask a question, the tone with which you ask it, and the content of it are really, really important. Really important when you come to asking a question. And in fact, all of the questions that we've asked up until now have really had an emphasis placed on the tone. The tone can be suspicious. Am I suspicious when I'm asking this? Am I asking this question out of compassion or care or concern? Or is there something else? And while content is still important, uh, and uh, while, while uh, the tone is still important, there's a sincerity to this question this week that is different from weeks past. In weeks past, there was some suspicion. In weeks past, there was some compassion. This week, there's just a genuine sincerity to the question that I want you to pay attention to. And finally, the other thing that's really different, every week up until now, we've looked at questions that individuals or groups have asked. Just single people come out. We've got the serpent. We've got God. We've got got Cain. We've got the Magi who came last week. But this week, it's not an individual it's a collective question, and that maybe is the most important thing. It's, it's the who behind the question that we're coming into this week that's very different. It's a collective question that we're all asking. It's not one person. It's not one group. It's not one character. It's a collective question everybody is asking. This is, this is what I would call, to kind of use a bigger word, this is a social existential question that we're dealing with here. And we all in this room and in our society, we all have common questions that we deal with. There are some questions that are just asked so often that we all claim those questions. It's sort of a, you know, it's a free agent question, right? It's public domain. Nobody has rights to this question. Everybody owns this question. For example, if I was to ask you right now, if you think about the season that we're living in, Seasons where, you know, everybody who's in here right now is face-to-face with me with a mask, and now I'm finally distant and can take mine off. But in seasons like the one that we're living in, that we've been traveling in for two years, what's the question we've been asking over and over and over again? What is it? Go ahead. You can say it out loud. You can talk at church. It's fine. Just pretend it's Pentecostal for a minute. What's the question we've asked for over and over again? What? When's it over, right? In fact, I thought that that might be your question so much. I just went ahead and typed that in. When's this going to be over? When is it done? When are we going to be finished with all of this, right? How long, oh Lord, must I travel this road? Is there an end in sight? Is there something that's coming? And each one of us individually, we could each one ask that question. But the question is really too big for any one of us in this room. 
It goes much bigger than just you or me or our group or that group. It's our question because we all wrestle with this question. We're all curious about the answer to this question. And this is important for a couple reasons. The first reason this is important is because common questions point us towards common concerns. Now, this is the space right here where our unity is found in society, where our unity can be found as a community. This is where it's found. Common questions point us towards common concerns. I mean, we all notice this. On the other side of a major crisis, there's always a few weeks where there's great, uh, a great deal of unity. Right? If you think about those who lived, if we think back for a minute for those who lived through 9-11, this is what we experience, right? On the other side of a major national catastrophe, common, co- common questions pointed us towards a common concern. We all came together in that moment. We had unity. And we, you know, believe it or not, I know it's been a crazy two years, we had that same sort of unity right after the pandemic began. Everybody sort of rallied together. We all said, we're going to get through this. We're going to make it through it. We're going to rise above this. And there'll be unity on the other side of crisis. But if you live long enough through a crisis, say, you know, like a global pandemic or something like that, if you live long enough, you know the unity doesn't last. Right? The unity sort of fades away after a while. Why does it not last? Why can't we just go back to those moments on 9-11-2001? Why can't we go back to that? And here's the reason. Because in our lives, our, our focus shifts from the questions to the answers. It moves. We're no longer asking the common question anymore. We're shifting to answers. And as important as it is for us to focus on the way that common, answer, or common questions unite us, it's equally important for you and me to remember that common questions also devolve into divided answers. And this is where the division in our society right now occurs. It's where we kind of rise up into different camps and different tribes and all those things because our common questions, once we push them to answers, cause us to devolve into divided answers. And those questions that once pulled us together have now become answers that pull us apart, answers that have a way of raising our suspicion of other people, answers that cause the question uh, to have power dynamics. Who's in charge? Who benefits from the answer here? Who's the one who really gets, gets all the, the money in this, right? Our answers bring diversity, which can actually tear us apart. But when we give priority to the answers in our lives, what you and I do is we create room for this division to happen. And what we feel right now, the division in the world that we're living in, is not all that far off from the division that the first century Christians felt when this, this book, Revelation, was first written to them. Just a few minutes ago, Hayden read to us this passage from the end of the book, Revelation chapter 18. And the first recipients of the book of Revelation lived in what I would describe as a deeply divided world. They didn't know how to live their life in faith in public. Because there were so many opinions about how they should do it and how they should go out every single day and engage with the empire that was around them and the government that was around them and the social pressures that were around them. And the church is walking through this world divided over how they can do because there's all these answers that are in front of them and they don't exactly know where to settle. And I feel like I have to say this on the very front of doing a sermon like this because Revelation is one of those books that leaves us with a lot of questions. And where there are a lot of questions, there are naturally going to be a lot of answers, a lot of different answers that pop up. And it's only fair to you that right on the front end here, I kind of unpack for you how I'm going to approach this book, the way that I look at this book, the way that I arrive at my answers in reading this book. And I know there are those of you who might disagree with me on this point, and that's okay, Uh, but at least you need to know where I'm starting from when I'm reading this book and what I'm looking at. And here's, 
Here's what it means. Here's, here's where I start. When I look at this book, and I've spent a lot of time in the book of Revelation, whenever I read it, I read it with one simple rule in mind, and I would hand this rule over to you, and you can do whatever you want with it. Revelation cannot mean today what it could not mean yesterday. Revelation cannot mean today what it could not mean yesterday. And there's a very simple reason I do this. When John of Patmos sat down and received these visions and wrote them down and sent them out, he sent them out to a particular group of people. He had a particular group of people in mind. It it was a people that he loved. It was a people that he shared his faith with. It was a people that he shared life experiences with. Many of them he had converted over to the faith. And now he's captured and he's in this prison and he sends this letter slash vision. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. To them because he thought it was for them. He wanted them to read it because it impacted their life right then. And if it was written for them then its meaning for us today cannot rise above what it meant to them back then. It has to settle and it has to be congruent with what happened back then. That's why I say it cannot mean today something that it could not have meant yesterday. And if you want to debate this out, that's fine. I'll be happy to debate that out. My email address is justin at salem.is. Um, just send that. Uh, just send an email. It's, it's fine with me. I'm sure, I'm sure it'll get read and responded to very promptly. But we have to start there. You have to know that right up front. You know, when we go back to, to where I started just a minute ago, the original recipients of this final book in the Christian canon, the book of Revelation, lived in this divided world. And if we take seriously what is spoken in the second and third chapter of this book, this is part, is at least in part, a letter written to them. It's a letter that's written out to them. It's to first century Christians living in Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. All of these towns that the letter is being written to and sent to in the world that they occupied was asking them as Christ followers to do this. It was asking them to live in between two cities. It was asking them to live in between two worlds. They were asked to pledge allegiance to Caesar and to the Savior. And everyone was asking in that moment the common question, how can we do both? How can we do that? How is it possible to live in this divided world? And that's where the division came down. How would they go about this? How would they live that out? And if you read chapters 2 and 3 carefully, what you'll see is that every single church, Thyatira and Pergamum and Sardis and Ephesus and Laodicea and Philadelphia and all of these churches, they had a different answer to that question right there. They had a different way of coming down upon the answer. But no no response is more dramatic than the final one, Laodicea. And some of you may have heard this spoken in the past, or you may be familiar with this verse. This is the passage where the, the cosmic Christ comes to the church of Laodicea and says, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but you're not. What are you? Lukewarm. And because you're lukewarm, what am I going to do? Well, the King James says, I'll spit you out. But the actual Greek word there is like more of a vomit. I'm going to vomit you out because you're so disgusting. That's what's going to happen. I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you're not, you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. And of course, on the surface here, this just looks like a really incredible example. But if we dig deeper into the geography of Laodicea, what you'll discover is this city is central to hot springs off to the east and cold mountain springs to the northeast. And by the time the cold water and the hot water through the aqueducts gets to the city, what is it? Lukewarm. 
And so they know what it's like to have warm water, always wishing that they could have hot or cold, but have neither. And he says, this is the way that you're living your faith out. You're not living it in one way or the other, but you're living in this in-between, mixed-up place. And the church in Laodicea receives the last letter, and it's after that last letter, that really harsh statement, that John shifts the scene to another city. He goes in chapter 4 to the throne room of God, and just that quickly, from seven churches in seven cities, all in service, to one great city, we enter into this throne room of God, this brand new city. It's as if John in that moment just pulls back the curtain and he says, let me show you what's really happening. Let me show you what's really happening behind the scenes. Because at right now, you think that everything that's right in front of your face is all that's happening in the world, but it's not. And so let me just pull this back. And so he pulls back the curtain to show us what every one of them were feeling. How do we live faithful lives between the throne of Caesar and the throne of God? How do we live uh, or navigate life on earth and life in heaven? How do we operate in Rome and how do we operate in the celestial city because they have different rules, they have different obligations. And for the remainder of this book, John is going to unpack that. He's got this vision that God gives him that answers that question. It establishes norms and values for the heavenly city. And when it establishes those, it tells you and me who live on earth how we're supposed to live our lives right now. What we're supposed to do right now. And it it will erupt in conflict There's war in this book. There's conflict in this book because what happens is when you and I actually start living Christian lives according to the faith and according to the values that Jesus teaches, that puts us at odds with things in the world. That sets us apart from other things in the world. And as John describes this, it erupts into chaos and conflict. And when he ends his letter vision, he ends it with the destruction of all that we know. And that's where we started today. Revelation chapter 18. This is the final section of this entire letter, letter of vision. And it's the, the final destruction of all earthly empires, all earthly things. And it's the exaltation of God's glory, of God's city. And that's where this final question comes. The final question that we'll see in all of Scripture lands right there. In the last section of Revelation, just as the great city of Babylon is being destroyed. Now, just to be clear, this isn't the literal city of Babylon. It's not even geographically the city of Babylon. This is code word in Revelation for Rome. Every time that John mentions Babylon, he's referring us back to the empire of Rome. This is what Babylon is. And every great empire in the world will always take that title of Babylon. It's code word for the world's empire, for the greatest country the world has ever known. And in the 18th chapter, here's what John says. The city that everyone thought was indestructible the city that everyone thought was impenetrable, the city that everybody thought would never fall apart, the greatest country to ever exist, guess what happens to it? Falls apart. It's destroyed in the end. It falls down in the end. And it is exposed finally for what it is. What is it? John says it's a dwelling place for demons. That's what it is. The entire world thinks it's a wonderful place. The entire world thinks it's the thing that brings blessings to the world. And John says when God pulls the curtain back on the greatest empire that ever exists, it's a dwelling place for demons. It's a haunt for evil spirits. And the angel of God in the very beginning of Revelation chapter 18 comes out and announces her destruction. The angel says to all the people, flee, get out of here, go. And then in verse 9 we start to see the different groups of people talk. 
In verse 9, we see all the rulers of the world coming out and they start talking about what's going on. Those who benefited from the system cry out. Rulers, powerful people, kings. And then after that, it rolls into merchants and business owners, the ones who've made their money off the economy of this system. They're the ones who then cry out next. And then in verse 17, which is where I want us to pick up today, the scene shifts just a little bit. We go from rulers and those who are in power to the merchants and the business owners. And then we jump out of the city altogether and we land in the ocean. In verse 17, we start to see sailors and seafarers. In fact, that's exactly what it says. It says they're close to the city, but they're not in the city. And all the shipmasters, the seafarers, the sailors, all who trade on the sea, they stood far off. It's an interesting kind of illustration. Those others, the merchants and the business owners and the the kings and the powerful, they're in this city. They're in the thick of it. But this group, they stand far off and they cry out as they saw the smoke of her burning. Now, I don't have time to go through each section by section here of the merchant class or the ruling class, but let me very quickly highlight this one group right here who's standing at a distance. This group right here, this group is ones who would have benefited from the city. They would have received wealth from the city. They would have participated in the city. They would have traded with the city. They would have built lives for themselves by the power of the city, but they're not in the city. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. Sorry, They're not in the city. But they have benefited from the city. They're not a part of the city. In fact, some of them probably have their citizenship elsewhere. But they benefited from the city. And they see the destruction of the city from afar. They watch her destruction from the far. And this is important for John to highlight. Because these are the people who are saved in boats. Now you really can put this together. These are people, in other words, who are saved in water. Or saved through water. Or saved through the ark. Kind of reminds me of something we've participated in already, right? These are the people who through water find their salvation and they're resting in this. It's this early common uh, descriptor of Christians, people who are saved through the ark of safety, according to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. This vision of shipmasters and seafarers and sailors is a vision of Christ's followers who have been a part of this system, who have been a part of this world, and who have been struggling all along to figure it out. And guess what? They're the ones who get the final question. They're the ones who get to voice this final question in all of Scripture. They're the ones who finally, collectively ask this existential question. And here's what their question is. Revelation chapter 18, verse 18b says this. What city is like this great city? Which one is like it? This is all we've ever known. Is there anything greater than this? And yet we see it falling to the ground. We see it falling apart. We see it burning to the ground. And this, my friends, is the weight and the challenge of our lives as well. We are that same people who kind of sit at sea, who benefit from the city, who benefit from the power structures around us. And we look at it and we say, what is like this great city? This is the one that has poured out all these blessings on me. And I know many of you, many of you might actually, and I just want to correct this real quickly if this is the case. Some of you might be associating very clearly this to be America right now because I use words like greatest nation and all those things. And that's natural. I understand why you might do that. But America is not in John's mind, right? That, that's not what is in John's mind. It's much bigger than America. And the temptation to dual allegiance is much larger than just the country that sits in front of us and, the, the, and our obligation to God, right? And, and it goes much bigger than that. The, du- the temptation to dual allegiance is grounded any time we are tempted to align our social values, align with our social values, instead of our religious values. 
And some of you might not say you get your values from American society, and that's okay. Right? Some of you might get them somewhere else, but John's point is this. Anywhere you get your values that are separate from Christ, you've got dual allegiance, and you've got to figure this out. And it may very well be your country. It may very well be your county. It may very well be your community. It may very well be your family. It may very well be any of these social institutions, but the point that your social values come up to competition with your religious values, you have problems. And you're looking out there and going, what could be like this great city? What could be like this great city on earth? What city is like this one that we know? And there really is an easy way to spot this in your life. I'll, I'll just kind of throw this out. If you're wondering where your values lie and where, where you may drift away from Christian values every now and then, it sticks out in one phrase. And I hear this phrase a lot, but I'm sure you all hear this phrase a lot. I know the Christian thing to do, but. You ever heard that phrase, right? This is a key indicator in your life that you're leaning towards those social values instead of religious values whenever you say that. I know the Christian thing to do, but. And the but is always followed by some value that I hold that I'm going to live into and I'm going to actualize. This is a compromising statement that John had such a problem with, right? And it's the ongoing challenge, not only for those in the first century, but it's the challenge of faithful men and women who, throughout the centuries of the faith. So what do we do about it? How do we address this? How do we respond to this? Here's, here's what I would suggest. I suggest we do what the seafarers did. The seafarers actually set up a wonderful example when they asked that question. It, it follows after. They asked the question, what do we do? This is such a great city. This is all we've ever known. And then it follows in this way. And they threw dust on their heads and they wept and mourned. On the other side of this recognition that they have been looking at this city, they recognize it as the greatest city in the world, repentance follows in their lives. They do the very same thing that Nineveh did on the other side of Jonah's uh, proclamation of destruction to them. They came in and they mourned and they repented. They did exactly what they should have done when they expressed this remorse. They modeled humility. Maybe I don't have all the answers. See, humility is an interesting word, especially if you go back to this early context here, because humility always means lowly or grounded. The image here is someone who's just flat-faced on the ground, and when you're flat-faced on the ground, what are you closer to? Dirt, right? It puts your face down in the dirt. This is why the throwing of dirt or dust, or ash is so important in the, in the symbol of repentance is because it's modeling that humility. I want to get as close to the dirt as I can. I want to get as low as I can and recognize I don't have all the answers. And that's what repentance does for you and me. Repentance frees us from our need for answers. Right? The world would want us to have this visual a reminder of turning 180 degrees. I'm going this direction, but I automatically turn around and go back this direction. But really, it's a much broader understanding is that when I am repenting, I'm releasing myself from the obligation to have all the answers. I'm releasing myself from the obligation to have it all in place and to have it all in together. And I'm recognizing that there's someone else who's greater than me who can and after we enter into that phase of repentance, there's two more things that we can see. We need to enter into a phase of mourning what's lost and rejoicing. Mourning and rejoicing. And it's odd to think that both of those things happen, but this is exactly what takes place in the context of Scripture. In verse 19 and 20, it says, Alas, alas, and remember, this is the seafarer speaking, the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in one hour she has been laid waste. They mourn. 
the loss of this city. But then they turn it right around in the next verse, verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. You see, they mourned her loss, but they rejoiced at their gain. They mourned and acknowledged how they had been active participants in this terrible city. They didn't hide that fact. They recognized that fact. They recognized that they were in, in, in on it, that they were a part of it. But as soon as they mourned, they started rejoicing at what was gained in the midst of that destruction. It hurt in that place, and they did own that. But then they moved on to the rejoicing. And we rejoice knowing that all who are harmed, maimed, and killed by our system one day will be vindicated. This is what we can rejoice in. God has made all things right. God has brought all things back together. We didn't know how to bring justice to the world, so God is the one who did that for us. But we rejoice that all is being made right in God. And here's what we understand. You and I, when we are faced with these collective challenges, what we have to do is we have to mourn together and we have to rejoice for each other. We have to mourn together, recognizing this is part of our life and this is where we're at. And, and I, I'm so, so sorry to be a part of it. But I'm also going to rejoice. Because even when it's difficult and even when it's hard and even when I feel the weight of that grief around me, I can rejoice that God is making something new in this world. I can rejoice that God is making something new in me. You see, it's not just, just about the systems, and it's not just about the way that God recreates the world, but it's how God does that individual act of transformation for each one of you. The places in your life where you have felt the weight of sin and death all around you, you can mourn those, but you can also rejoice that God is wanting to do something in and through you. God is wanting to transform you. You can be different. You can live into a different world. The great city that the sailors look at, it changes for each one of us. Each one of us have a different city. We have a different sort of Babylon that's in front of us. For some, it might be the USA. For others, it's a pol this political party or that political party. For some, it's a region or a community or, you know, any of these things. But for all of us, our city, it's not really about buildings and people and places. It's about values. The things we love about certain places are the values that they put into us because the values shape how we act. And what makes John's vision so painful is a lot of times we value the values of the great city. I mean, if we're honest about it, we do value them. That's why we live into them. That's why we act on them all the time. We value the values of the great city. Whatever that city is, whatever it looks like for you. But when we follow God, a lot of those values have to be put to death. And there's an introduction of this new values that shapes us, but it also shapes our behaviors in the world. It changes how we answer questions. It changes how we interact in, in public spaces. It changes how we, how we proceed forth in jobs. And that's why in that space we mourn, because we know something of ourselves has to die, but we rejoice. Because we know that God is making something new in all of us. We feel the loss. We feel the promise in a better way. And I think I remind, this, remind us of this probably every single month when we approach this table right here. But when we approach this table, when we kneel at this altar, we receive 
from Christ's body and blood, we both mourn and we rejoice. And we respond with a new set of values. I mean, think about this. We start our celebration of communion each time with confession of sin. Confession to God and to one another. And this is a different set of values from the rest of the world that we would openly admit we don't have it all together. Right? We don't walk into our jobs and everybody's like, come on, everybody, let's talk about how much we messed up yesterday. Right? That's not a part of what we do. But in the context of Christianity, we come together and we admit our faults and our failures. We admit the ways that we've messed up. We live into that different set of values. So we start with the posture of confession. We proceed into the common elements of bread and wine. And we remember, we remember that from these we receive strength from weakness, not from power. We receive healing from hurt. We receive bravery from the brokenness of Christ's body. And we kneel. We kneel in this place. Today you're going to come from a variety of different places and stages and lives. And as seafarers on the sea, you'll come to this table today looking at different cities. Mourning the brokenness of those places. But as you kneel with each other at this altar, coming from these various places and stages, various cities, various values, we kneel as one. We kneel to the ruler of one city. One city that claims us all, that creates us all. And this is the place that I want to invite you to this morning. This is the place that I want us to come to this morning. And as we come to this place, we're going to begin like we often do through confession. And as we begin in just a moment with confession before we go into our time around the table, some of you may want to kneel where you are. Some of you may want to stand where you are. Just close your eyes right where you are. But I hope you'll take this moment to deeply recognize the ways in which we have broken God's law, the way we have aligned ourselves with the values of this world, and the way in which God is calling us through this moment into a brand new space.